This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was an escape worthy of a Hollywood movie that stunned the world. Former Nissan chairman Carlos Ghosn was smuggled out of Japan where he was facing criminal charges in a large case meant for audio equipment. A former Green Beret and his son planned and executed the daring escape. Now they're sitting in the Tokyo prison that once held Ghosn while he's saved from Japanese law in Lebanon. Michael Taylor and his son Peter pleaded guilty on Monday to charges that they helped Ghosn in his dramatic escape from Japan. Joining me is Eric Feldman, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. So the Taylors said they had no objection to the accusations against them. Is that the equivalent of a guilty plea? It seems to be the equivalent of a guilty plea by them. They, they don't seem to have uh, had any objection at all to the charges that were read out in court by the judge. And you know, it, it's not uncommon. It's by, by far the norm in Japanese criminal justice is for criminal defendants to plead guilty and apologize. So confession is a, is a typical way of doing things there in a similar way one, I suppose, could say that a plea bargain is a typical way of doing things here. They've been in custody since March. Carlos Ghosn had said that the authorities had subjected him to harsh prison conditions with the intention of making him confess. Both of these men have spent time in solitary confinement. Then in Japan, there's questioning by prosecutors for long periods of time without lawyers present. Do you think there was pressure on them to plead guilty? I think it depends upon what one means by pressure. I don't think they were physically tortured. That would not be the norm in Japan at, at all. But does one feel pressure to confess when they're held in solitary confinement? They're repeatedly questioned by the authorities and the prosecutors in Japan, like everywhere, are fairly practiced in their interrogation techniques, and they're, they're certainly meant to break one down psychologically so as to confess. I think it was also, I mean, the, the facts have been revealed pretty clearly, I think these two gentlemen have described in some detail elsewhere what it took for them to help Carlos go and escape Japan. So it would have been a bit hard for them, arguably, to, to object too strongly to some of the facts in the court, the facts that they've accepted in other venues. They're due back in court on June 29th when they're going to be cross-examined. If they've pled guilty already, how does this work? Why are they going to be cross-examined at this point? Yeah, in general, in Japanese criminal justice, a guilty plea is not enough. You still need evidence to convict. So simply saying, I did it is thought to be a, a significant but not sufficient condition for a criminal judgment to be handed down by the court. So the court still needs to uh, have the evidence aired and brought to the court and aired and discussed in court before they can actually convict. The Japanese legal system, it's said that it's a very harsh system where 99% of cases result in convictions. Are any of the protections afforded to defendants in the American justice system afforded to defendants in the Japanese legal system? I think that the procedural rights that are accorded to criminal justice defendants in the United States probably exceed those of most other countries. So I, I think a criminal defendant in Japan would not necessarily have the same robust procedural rights as a criminal defendant in the United States. It's not clear to me that the a 99% figure that's so often quoted 
is much different than what one sees in the United States, at least in the work I've seen of scholars of criminal justice, particularly comparative criminal justice, whose work I, I trust and respect. I think at the end of the day, when you go through the procedures followed in the United States and the procedures followed in Japan, we find about the same percentage of individuals who are initially charged with a crime who are ultimately convicted of the crime. It's just that the systems work in somewhat different ways. I should also say about the Japanese criminal justice system generally, to, to the degree that we think we need criminal justice system and courts and police and prosecutors in order to keep society safe, the contrast between rates of violent crime and general safety in Japan and the United States just couldn't be more stark. There was a, a new survey of the world's safest cities came out last week. And two of the top three were Japanese cities, Tokyo and Osaka, I believe. Osaka was number one, Tokyo was number three, and Singapore were sandwiched between them. So it's always hard, of course, to figure out what the exact relationship is between policing, criminal justice, and safety. But it is clear that one can enjoy certain liberties living in Japanese society, like not worrying much, for example, about being the victim of a violent crime. For women, the frequency of rape in Japan is infinitely lower than it is in the United States. Homicide is extremely low in Japan compared to here. So, yes, I think there is somewhat more harshness, arguably, in the Japanese criminal justice system. On the other hand, to the degree that what they're trading off is, is for a significantly safer society, I think many would suggest uh, that it may well be worth it. They face a maximum of three years in prison. Is it often the case that the prison sentences are maxed out? I think that often depends. To the degree that one appreciates that the norm in Japan is confession, I think people see confession and repentance and then reintegration into society as, in many ways, the highest goal, the really great aspiration of the criminal justice system. So that I think people often would expect somewhat lower sentences than the maximum sentence if they've played their part as criminal defendants, i.e. if they've apologized, if they've been repentant and serious, etc., about that repentance to the degree that they remain uh, with their heels dug in and insist they did nothing wrong and they're being prosecuted unfairly, I think they're much more likely to see the maximum sentence. Years ago, I parked illegally in Tokyo. I had a rental car. I, I parked somewhere. I didn't really know whether it was legally or illegal, and I came back. And what they do when you park illegally sometimes is they put this very brightly colored plastic on your mirror. So it's a badge of shame, and you can't drive your car with everybody seeing that your car has been tagged. And I went to the local police station, and they said, you know, you parked illegally. And I said, I'm aware of that. I'm very, very sorry. And there was an older cop and a younger cop, and, and the older officer said, yeah, we're really glad you're sorry. And the younger officer said, I don't think he's really sorry. <laughs> and to the degree that I wasn't really sorry, he had decided that I should be penalized and taught my lesson. To the degree that I was really sorry, the older cop was going to let me go. And they had a long debate about how sorry I really was until they finally pulled a piece of paper out from the desk in the police office. And it was a pre-printed apology letter that I had to sign, apologizing deeply for my uh, infraction and swearing I would never do it again. What a great story. Thanks, Eric. That's Professor Eric Fellman of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Corporate executives regularly unload stock through scheduling plans they create under the Securities and Exchange Commission's Rule 10b-51. 
There have been calls to toughen the regulation for years. The Council of Institutional Investors, which represents pensions, petitioned the SEC in 2012 to prohibit executives from having multiple 10B51 plans and frequently modifying or canceling them. Now, as the SEC is considering toughening the rules, it's being urged to tread carefully. Joining me is securities attorney Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. Tell us about how corporate executives unload stock under Rule 10b-51. Rule 10b-51 is a rule that the SEC adopted about 20 years ago that allows corporate executives to put in place a written plan that allows them to sell their shares in public companies in an orderly way. Uh, and there's a couple of requirements under the rule. One, and probably the most important part, is that the executive cannot have any sort of material non-public information at the time that he enters into the plan. And what Rule 10 one does is that it provides a defense to executives so that the plan can continue selling shares, you know, whether it's a certain number, you know, every month. Uh, even though the executive might later learn about inside information at the company. Despite this rule, can executives still use inside information to cash in? No, they can't. Under the rule, the SEC specifically says that if an executive has inside information, he can't establish one of these 10b-5-1 plans. Um, The executive has to wait until that information is announced by the company, typically in some sort of earnings release. What 10b-5-1 plans allow executives to do is to set up uh, something in writing, usually with their broker, that'll dictate uh, that certain stock sales will occur at specified times. I guess the great advantage of these types of plans is that in the old days, before these plans were around, Every time an executive wanted to sell shares, they would have to check with their company's compliance department or their general counsel's office to see if they could, and then some sort of decision would have to be made about whether the executive had material, non-public information. But with the 10b-5-1 plan, as long as the executive does not have inside information when he sets up the plan, the sales can continue throughout the life of the plan, even though the executive might later come into possession of material non-public information. So why have there been calls to change the rule for years? What do people find problematic? Now, these types of trading plans have been somewhat controversial um, since the time that they were adopted. And the SEC chairman, uh, Gary Gensler, recently gave a speech where he outlined some very serious concerns the SEC has um, that echoed a lot of the other concerns that were in the market. You know, well, first of all, uh, there's no waiting period for the plans to be adopted. So there's a perception that, that these plans can sometimes uh, be used to really allow executives to sell shares, even though they have material non-public information uh, and, and they're using the plans in, in a wrong way. Uh, so one of the concerns is there's no waiting period that an executive can adopt the plan and start selling shares under the plan within a week or two of adopting the plan. And in fact, some research that uh, the SEC cited shows that about 14% of trading plans, they start within 30 days, which the SEC views as problematic. And, and secondly, there's really no uh, limit on the number of plans a person could have. So a person could, could in, implement different trading strategies and combined with the, I, the fact that an executive can cancel a plan, 
it, it seems like it gives people an opportunity to pick and choose um, and, and abuse the process to get around the insider trading restrictions. And in 2012, a Wall Street Journal analysis found that executives did better than expected on their trades around the time of market-moving news. Yes, I have seen that analysis. Uh, the, the 10B51 plans are very popular among corporate executives because they do allow the executives to sell shares uh, when they otherwise would be prohibited from doing so under the insider trading provisions. And it, it has allowed many, many executives to, to, sell, to sell shares. The SEC has, has not been particularly active in enforcement in this area. There are a couple of notable cases. Uh, one was against Ken Lay from Enron, where he was alleged to have sold about $20 million of stock uh, inappropriately under a 10B51 plan. And there is another case against Angelo Mazzillo, um, more recently from Countrywide, who is alleged to have sold $139 million of stock in violation of the insider trading provision. So um, the plans have been abused, and there's certainly a perception among academics and others that, uh, that, they, that they're uh, open for abuse. In order to pursue insider trading, is the problem that the SEC would have to show intent? Yes, the SEC has to show that the person, when they adopted the plan, already knew some inside information, already knew something that was material that wasn't public, and that can be challenging for the SEC, particularly kind of uh, trying to root out um, insider trading amidst all the many thousands of plans that are in effect. Uh, so the SEC could have a hard time uh, proving insider trading, and what makes it uh, even more problematic from the SEC is that executives are not required to disclose um, to the SEC or anyone else when they adopt one of these 10B51 plans. And that was one of the other concerns that Chairman Gensler from the SEC had, is that there's really no uh, light and no sort of disclosure to have the SEC have a window into how many plans are in existence and what the plans provide. What's the proposed rule going to change? Gensler and the SEC haven't yet proposed a formal uh, amendment to the rule, but I think it's pretty clear from his speech that uh, one thing the SEC is looking at is having a cooling off period of between four to six months uh, before executives can sell shares under these 10B51 plans. Um, one of the criticisms is that the executives adopt the plans and almost immediately can be begin selling stock. Um, so one of the proposals that uh, Chairman Gensler mentioned is having a much longer uh, cooling off period of four to six months. Um, another restriction that the Chairman Gensler mentioned about potentially adopting would be having limits on executives being able to cancel the plans once they're in place. Uh, as it is now, an executive can have a plan in place that says, you know, sell 50,000 shares every month for six months. But on month three, if the executive becomes aware of some very positive non-public development at the company, that executive can go and cancel the plan and thereby keep the shares so that they would presumably go up in value. And the SEC is looking at uh, having a rule that says an executive cannot cancel a plan once adopted. So there's been some pushback. One of the people urging caution for the SEC is Uber Deputy General Counsel Keir Gums. He told the agency's Investor Advisory Committee last week that Rule 10b-51 plans are effective 
at helping executives ethically sell stock and shouldn't be discouraged. What are some of the concerns that companies may have about changing the rule? Messing up the executive compensation packages is one uh, concern that companies have. And, and the other thing is, the, the fact of the matter is, these plans have been in, in, around for about 20 years, and there's really been very, very little um, evidence or enforcement activity that executives are abusing the plans. Um, and the plans have become uh, very popular with executives and companies because they allow executives to sell uh, shares that they've acquired in an orderly manner and reduce the compliance burden on companies to have to try to determine whether or not a particular executive has material non-public information. But yes, many of the executives have large concentrations of their net worth tied up in the stock that they earn as, as compensation, and the executives would like to have um, an orderly way to ethically sell shares, um, and 10 one plans have been a, a popular way of doing that. So, Bob, let's say they propose the rule in October. What happens after they propose the rule? After the SEC proposes the rule, there's going to be a comment period where uh, people from from the industry can comment, as well as investors, uh, both in institutional and retail investors, can comment on the proposed rules. And after that comment period, which typically lasts about 60 days, the SEC will evaluate all the comments that they've received, and uh, oftentimes the SEC does make modifications to the rules that were proposed. And then usually within um, you know 90 to 120 days, the SEC would come out with a uh, new final rule, which would go into effect and would likely contain some of these types of provisions. Um, and and industries noted as well as other institutional investors that some of the things the SEC wants to implement are already being done as a best practice, even though they're not required. But um, as a best practice, many brokers um, will recommend to executives to wait 60 days before the plan can kick in and start uh, selling securities. Um, So some of these practices are already in place, but they would essentially be mandated under an SEC rule if, if it does get adopted. Do you think these changes are a good idea? I do think some of the changes are a good idea. The academic research that's been done um, has raised some troubling concerns, uh, specifically surrounding um, executives who implement these plans and immediately start selling shares in their companies. I think as a there can be uh, you know very good questions raised about whether executives um, have material non-public information during that time frame. At the same time, waiting four to six months seems uh, very long, um, and I would be more comfortable with a 60 or 90 day cooling off period. Um, so perhaps there's some room for compromise um, at the SEC. Um, but I do think reforms are, are warranted uh, from the research that's been done, and uh, hopefully the common period will allow the SEC to come up with sensible reforms that still allow executives to sell uh, their securities in an ethical way without uh, violating the insider trading laws. Thanks for being on the show, Bob. That's securities attorney Robert Heim of Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. In the first legal test of COVID-19 vaccine mandates, a Texas federal judge tossed out a lawsuit against Houston Methodist Hospital over its requirement that employees get vaccinated. In a blistering opinion, Judge Lynn Hughes said vaccine mandates are not coercive and claims that the vaccines are dangerous are false and irrelevant. 
It's the first test of whether emergency federal approval affects an employer's ability to mandate vaccinations. Joining me is Robert Ayafola, Bloomberg Law Reporter. So now tell us what the judge ruled in the case of Houston Methodist Hospital. So the judge threw out the lawsuit, rejected the claims that were made by the uh, workers. The lawsuit had alleged that the mandate was illegal because they were on emergency use authorization rather than the full authorization, but it also made some rhetorical claims, you know, likening the vaccine mandate to Nazi-era experimentation on concentration camp prisoners. It was a short but blistering opinion that threw out the lawsuit and criticized the rhetorical claims. This is the first opinion about the COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Explain how it doesn't have binding power on other courts, but it might be persuasive for other courts. So this was a ruling from a Texas federal judge at the district court level. So district court opinions like that, they're not binding on other federal courts, but they can be persuasive, particularly in instances such as this, where it's a novel legal issue that hasn't been tested. And then one judge comes down with a ruling, particularly a ruling like this, that's so forceful and direct. Other judges will look to that, and sometimes they can use that as a framework or guidance for how they'll treat the same issue. So you spoke to several professors, and Professor Nicholas Bagley of Michigan Law said, if you're a conservative judge, the argument doesn't speak to you. And if you're a liberal judge, the argument doesn't speak to you. So I don't think it's likely to go anywhere. So explain what he meant. The professor was explaining that if you look at the lawsuit, there's a certain ideological argument there that's pitched more towards sort of conservative worldviews, you know, about not being told what to do, not being made to take a vaccine that you don't want to take. But he was also saying that, you know, Republican-appointed judges, uh, conservative judges, they also tend to be more in favor of giving employers the power to set terms of employment and control their workplace and be able to tell their workers uh, what they're supposed to do. So he was highlighting sort of the mismatch there that, Conservative judges aren't likely to cotton to this argument because they believe in employer freedom. But the attorney behind this lawsuit, Jared Woodfill, who was also involved in election litigation, says he's not giving up. The attorney explained that the workers plan to appeal this ruling. So that would be appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And he also said that he's trying to pursue some of these claims to get the case before the Texas Supreme Court. And that would require state law only claims. This lawsuit that was dismissed by a Texas federal judge was originally filed in state court. But because of the federal law issues that were central to the lawsuit, it was transferred from state court to federal court. So he wants to try to pursue some state law claims in state court. But he did not elaborate uh, specifically on you know, what those claims might look like. He's been involved in politics? Uh, so I understand that he was the uh, chairman of the Harris County Republican Party uh, for a couple of terms. Um, and yeah, that he was involved uh, in some election-related litigation Um I believe it was uh, a lawsuit about um, some... There were a hundred, only 178 workers out of 26,000 that refused to get vaccinated here. So it's just a tiny, a tiny percentage of workers. 
Yeah, yeah. Which uh, the hospital had reported that um, you know at the time of the filing of the lawsuit that 99% of the workers had complied with the vaccination mandate. Um, and yeah, there were these outliers who didn't want to get a shot and uh, sued to to prevent that. Um, I also understand from the attorney representing the workers that some of them filed uh, or he was preparing charges to file with the EEOC um, complaining about the hospital rejecting some of these workers um, requests for accommodation based on um, health or religious reasons. Once the FDA approves these vaccines, the basis for these lawsuits will disappear once there's final approval. I think that's right. Two of the three companies uh, that have, gotten emergency use authorization, Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, they filed with the FDA for the full authorization. And, and it should be said that emergency use authorization, although it's a sped up process, it's still quite rigorous. The primary difference, uh, to my understanding, is the amount of data they need as far as looking at people who've received the, t- the shot and what sort of health conditions they're having. I believe for the Emergency use, they need something like two months worth of data. And for the full authorization, they need something like six months worth of data. Thanks, Bob. That's Bloomberg Law reporter Robert Iafola. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Please join me every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.